Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and you're listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. We all know that the fashion industry is brutally competitive and it takes loads of hard work to get ahead. The problem is that everyone's secretive and tight-lipped about their ways. After working as a designer and educator for over a decade, I wanted to help break down those barriers and bring you valuable knowledge from industry experts, and this show is exactly where you'll find that. Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. This is episode 58 of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, and today I'm chatting with Robin Spady. Robin is a brilliant woman who is a hand weaver. Um, What does that mean? She creates these beautiful textiles by hand that are sometimes used in fashion, sometimes used in other ways. Um, You can check out her website in the show notes for more information about what it is that she does with that. Um, In addition to this, uh, the hand weaving, which she's been doing for a very, very long time and she's really good at, she has some great stories to tell. She also has a brilliant mind when it comes to marketing and business Uh, in relation to fashion businesses and fashion brands and companies. And in this conversation, we touch on a lot of different things from the value of networking and creating relationships and how you can do that in a way that is not icky and grimy. Also, uh, we discuss the benefit of... You know, really figuring out who you're talking to with your brand. Who is your customer? How are you figuring out what your product is? You're positioning that in the market. A ton of really uh, fun ways she talks about marketing and getting your brand out there. Um, Figuring out who you're actually trying to talk to, what your niche market is. Again, I'm throwing a bunch of marketing lingo at you, but the way she talks about this, the stories that she tells, the examples that she uses are really brilliant. They're very easily applicable to what you're doing. So I know you're going to love this episode. Um, If you are out there thinking, I need to get to know more people in this industry, I need to build a bigger quote unquote network, or I need to get my brand out there, I'm trying to figure out what to do. This is going to be a plethora of information for you. Now, I will remind you guys that the best way to spread the word about the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast is to share the interview with a friend or a colleague or anyone. Maybe you're a freelancer and there's some brands out there that you want to do some work with and you listen to this and you think, boy, they could really use some of the advice that Robin shared in this episode. Do them all a favor. Provide a little value to someone today by sharing this podcast episode with them or the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast in general. Take 30 seconds right now and jump on your phone or jump in your inbox and shoot a message to one person who you know would benefit from listening to this podcast. You know, you're not asking for anything in return. You're just saying, hey, I listen to this great podcast. Here's why I think you'll like it. Check it out and send them the link. That goes so far. You're going to hear Robin talk about things just like that in our interview. You know, give someone a little piece of value. Tell them, give them a resource, give them something that will be of benefit to them. And then sometime down the road, if or when you need something from them, they'll be happy to help you out because you're out there constantly thinking about them. So, uh, yeah, shoot this episode to a friend, a colleague, someone out there. I know they will appreciate it, and I appreciate it as well. All right, let's jump into the interview with Robin. As always, you can access the show notes for today's episode at sfdnetwork.com slash 58. 
Welcome, Robin, to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. I am so, so, so excited to have this conversation with you today. Um, You and I have chatted a couple times in the past, and after our first call, I think it was like 10 minutes in, I was like, I have to bring you on the show. Um, So you're here today, and I'm really thrilled. Um, Can you introduce yourself and let everybody know who you are and what you do in the industry? Um, uh, My name is Robin Spady. Uh, my role right now as it relates to fashion, um, I always say I'm kind of on the fringe. Um, I am uh, first and foremost a hand weaver. I'm the founder and editor of Heddlecraft Magazine, which is a, a digital weaving magazine uh, aimed at the hand weaving market. Um, and one of the things that I'm very keen on is trying to elevate the visibility of hand weaving, uh, especially as it applies to fashion. Um, and if you're a hand weaver, that means you're a textile designer. Um, you just also happen to be making your own textile. Um, I've been doing this full time for uh, over 17 years. I actually learned to weave when I was only nine years old and have been doing that ever since. Uh, but I also had a foray through corporate America for about 20 years where I was um, leveraging my background in communications, uh, perceptual psychology, and doing a lot of uh, management consulting, marketing, communications, um, working with people to help them develop a vision and um, get a better idea of where they could go as a company or as an individual. Awesome. Okay. And I want to talk about both things because you've had some really, really cool experiences and stories with your hand weaving business, which I find super fascinating and such an interesting sort of slice of the industry pie. Um, And then you also have all these brilliant insights into um, just marketing and like how to build and grow a company and the whole business side of things. So I want to touch on both of those. Um, Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about a little bit how you kind of got started in hand weaving and what that whole journey was like for you in, in building and growing that business of yours. Um, well, I started weaving at such a young age. And um, oddly enough, uh, a few years after I initially learned to weave, um, the high school I went to, which was in Portland, Oregon, it was Wilson High School, uh, had a uh, art room with 15 floor looms in it. And we had this very robust fiber arts program, and I just remember finding so much joy and satisfaction in designing and creating my own textile uh, and saying, I want to have a black line here, and I want to throw in a strand of this red uh, bumpy yarn. And just thinking it was so great that I could make it. I could take the fabric, I could actually transform it into something, whether it was something for you know, home interiors or whether it was a garment, um, even if it was just a lap throw, uh, and just started going from there. And it was, there was that tangible evidence that you got that you had made something. There's a lot of times you know, in, in my, my years in corporate America that you could go a week and not feel like you accomplished anything because there wasn't tangible evidence in front of you. Mm. But if I could, if I could handle the fabric, and I could go from a cone of yarn and see it become something else and then see that fabric become a garment. Um, there was just uh, such a great uh, joy in that. Um, and it was like, look what I've done. Oh my God, I made it. And then people would say, where did you get that? And you go, I made it. And I said, yeah, but where'd you get the fabric? And I said, I made it. <laughs> um, and, you know, when I talked to... Um, uh, people that sew or fashion designers, one of the things I think people really struggle with is finding good fabric. 
and some of it is, well, can I help elevate the visibility of hand weaving, which is alive and well in the United States, um, so that the hand weavers out there may have opportunity to work in conjunction with uh, other folks that are sewing uh, for themselves or are fashion designers. And I've done a little bit of work with fashion designers where, and, and I know some freaked out a little bit when they said, I can't afford handwoven fabric. And you go, that's okay. And then they figured out, well, gee, if I use it as a panel in a garment to really make it distinctive from everything else you see, um, you know, it doesn't have to be the entire garment. Um, and there are a number of uh, designers out there that have used handwoven fabric uh, in their garments. The probably the uh, most familiar to most uh, people would be the Chanel jacket, mm-hmm. uh, which are often of you know the linen tweed or the Lassange. Uh, fabrics, uh, but also Christian Lacroix and others have, have used handwoven fabric in their garments. Um, and I'm just going to call you out on it right now because we talked about this before we hit record, but you had some really um, behind the scenes access to a private Chanel collection. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, I can talk a little bit about it. I can't disclose who it was because they're a private couture collector. Okay. Um, but I've had access actually to a number of people and also uh, museum collections. One of the things that I do in publishing a magazine and I do a lot of teaching and I'm working on a couple of more books um, is I need access to how these fabrics were used. Um, when you see a fabric or you're designing and weaving a fabric, it's important that you know what the purpose of the fabric is going to be. So you want to make it appropriate to, you know, it, it's like people crack me up when, when they want to tell me that they know how to tailor silk charmeuse and you go, why are you tailoring silk charmeuse? <laughs> That's not the appropriate fabric. Um, and so seeing how these fabrics have been used, because a lot of these fabrics, when you see a um, Chanel jacket or something like that, the fabrics are, um, a little underset. They're, they don't have the structural integrity that many other fabrics would have, like a denim. Uh, but the construction techniques are important for how they're constructed. The, and I've been told that there's no such thing as a Chanel jacket, that I'm supposed to say it's the French cardigan-style jacket made famous by Coco Chanel. Mm. Um, and the, the way that the Chanel jackets, an authentic Chanel jacket is constructed, is the lining is quilted to the fabric, which helps offset the handwoven fabric, which it wants to look like a sweater. So it has a kind of like a soft sculpture look to it. So in opening up, so following up with people um, and finding out, you know, who has these items and uh, this one couture collector, uh, oddly enough, I had tried to get in touch with her for almost two and a half years and I could never get a response back. And I happened to write a short article about Chanel one time and she came across it and she got in touch with me via LinkedIn. And I thought, boy, if, if I have ever ever need to tell people about the value of LinkedIn, that is the one time that it made all the difference in the world. <laughs> um, when you say, you go, oh my gosh, this person I've been trying to get a hold of for two and a half years, um, who she has no idea who I am. Um, all of a sudden she contacted me and it's like, oh, you know a little bit about Chanel and I, I'm gonna be in your area. Uh, can I look at uh, some of your collection because I'm working one of the books I'm working on is how to make the trim that goes on a Chanel jacket and but I needed to look at the types of 
trim and sort of start deconstructing these. And so she, she allowed me to come in and I started working on that. And then I started working on, well, wow, the fabrics are pretty fabulous. As a hand weaver, I want to also look at what are the things being done in the textile design. And so this has been an ongoing relationship where then in, in return, I help her identify the weaves, the fabric, you know, more about the fabric. There was um, one fabric that she had in a Chanel jacket that I was explaining to her, it, this shouldn't work. This is combined two incompatible weave structures, but they made it work. And so in helping her identify and improve her records, then she's opened up that for other couture collector, vintage fashion collectors and museums. Uh, and so it, with the museums, um, I've often gone in and said, I will help you uh, improve your documentation uh, in exchange for giving me access so that I can study what you've got. So, and that, that's usually, I, I, I believe strongly in quid pro quo. I believe that, you know, if I can help you out, you can help me out. But I usually have to be very direct. It usually has to be, it's a one or two garments that I'm looking at, not just showing up saying show me what you've got in Chanel and Dior or something I love that point that you just made because that's a topic that has come up on the show before and it's just something I talk about in general is one is continuing to provide value to the to the other side you know, whoever's on the other side of the table. Um, sometimes you're providing value just to provide value. Sometimes you're providing value because, you know, you want something in return. You can't always go out with that intention. But how can we make this a win-win relationship? And then beyond that, you're asking for something very specific. Right. Um, and that can help you get the results and the answers and the feedback or whatever it is that you're looking for if you ask a very specific question or for a very mm -hmm. specific request, which that's mm -hmm. what I just dissected out of everything you said. <laughs> well, it, exactly, because it, it's it fascinating for me when I go in and look at something that, the let's say, a museum curator or a couture collector uh, is going to look at who did it, what is the age, things like that. I'm looking more at discrete information about what's the weave structure, what are the, the uh, components that they've used in the threads and the yarns and how have they balanced this out and it's been funny because I've, I've sat there some of the time with these people that have been so generous with their their time and access to things and am able to tell them do you understand this is really they did this 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 should not work mm -hmm. and somehow they were able to make it work or that I have absolutely no doubt the uh, this one couture collector showed me this haute couture Christian Lacroix coat and I'm looking at it and you know this is where we even getting it under a microscope and I'm able to see things that were so exciting because I the coat looks black and white but it's not it's dark purple and mm -hmm. white and so when you help them improve their records, and then I, because I was really curious, why on these garments, why is this shoulder seam shaped this way? Uh, because this is getting into the construction detail, so I have some of these folks helping me understand that. Or um, what was going on with, I had one uh, uh, museum curator explaining the this garment was made this way because of World War II and the, the availability of materials. And you're going, okay, that's interesting how they're, how they're doing that. So, you know, collectively, we all have a different lens that we look at these garments through. Um, I tend to look at it as 
how was this fabric created? Uh, what about the fabric needed to be specific to the construction techniques? Whereas somebody else is looking at it from who did it, what was the era, what was the country. Uh, I had to learn very quickly in dealing with museums that I needed to know specifically a designer, an era, a country or something. I couldn't just say, oh, I want to look at double-faced fabrics. Mm. And they looked at me and like, well, we don't do that. Okay. So once you start opening that up, and I've had people send me uh, images of their of the close-up of a garment saying, I want to improve my records on these garments. What is it? And some of the time you go, well, I may need to see the back of the fabric too. But it's really been great to see um, their perspective and how it connects with maybe the perspective that I bring in and that somebody else may bring in. You know, the whole psychology of clothing. You know, what did, what does that mean? You know, and that might be something that's different from uh, a couture collector or a museum curator and myself. Yeah. I, like I tell people over the years, you know, what you're wearing is a lot more interesting than you may realize. Yeah, there's so much more going on within the garment. Um, I mean, it, it, depending on the garment necessarily, there there's more or less going on. Um, so you started... You started weaving and and wearing stuff out that you had done and piqued a lot of interest. And then did you just kind of start creating documentation of what you were doing, which spurred relationships and collaborations and you building and you, you sort of building and creating these conversations with museums and collaborating with fashion designers? I mean, it sounds like it kind of grew organically over the years into yes. what it is now. Absolutely. It, it really started with, you know, let me make something, let me make something for myself. And then you do that and somebody sees it and they say, oh, wow, can you teach me how to do that? Which mm. um, I, because back when I was um, designing and, and you know, making uh, garments, people would start asking me about how you do that. Could you come in and teach us how to do that? And I ended up so overwhelmed with you know, more than I could do, something had to give, and I really love the teaching, I really love sharing with other people, and so then by opening that up, and some of it is just, I think somebody, you know, this collection at this museum looks really interesting, I'm going to be there, what if I contact the textile or fashion curator ahead of time, introduce myself, tell them what I'm doing or what I'm interested in, I think people, you, you need to set yourself up for being told no, mm. but but you can't get a yes unless you set yourself up, and no is easily survivable. I'm amazed at how often people say yes, because if you're a fashion or textile curator at a museum um, or at a university and you're teaching or you're a couture, couture collector, you may have most of your family and friends that are just not that interested, and to find someone that knows your your your, your shame, you know, that, that, oh my God, this is somebody that understands what I do and they get excited and let me share it and they're asking intelligent questions. I had a museum curator at the um, museum in Manchester, England that there were a couple of us there and he wasn't really sure why we were there. They, somebody just told him we were going to stop by and as soon as one person said something he realized oh you understand what I do and he got mm. so excited and the edit and we ended up spending the rest of the day with him opening up cabinets and letting us handle textiles he had let us handle with our hands uh, 16th century textiles Wow uh, and because we were asking can can we turn it over because as a 
hand weaver, you want to see the back of the fabric also. And um, he just made sure as long as our hands were clean, we could, because some of the time touching the fabric is helpful, but doing it with gloves on is uh, a little difficult. But he, he, as soon as, his posture, his body language changed completely when he knew that we understood what he did. Uh, yeah, I love that so much because I think, like you said, there's a lot of intimidation around maybe going out and asking for something or introducing yourself or hearing a no. But like you said, that's such a great point that oftentimes the person on the other side of the table is loves nerding out about that stuff just as much as you do. <laughs> and they don't always have people to gab about that with. Like, that's actually how you and I, our our relationship began. You sent yeah. me a phenomenal email nerding out on business strategy of these <laughs> themes you had seen show up throughout the podcast. And I read it and I was like, I love this woman. She talks my language. She is just as excited as I am. And I initiated a phone call right away. And that's how our relationship was founded because we both realized we love kind of geeking out on the same stuff and you know i i think i joked to you like i not all my friends or family loves to talk business and and you know fashion and strategy and all this stuff and like i'm like i can nerd out on this stuff all day long so when you find someone who's just as excited you do they just light up exactly exactly and i think you know the key is when you uh prepare to contact somebody do a little homework yeah. Um, and, you know, like, and it doesn't, like I said, you know, it took two and a half years for me to get this this couture collector to respond to me. And oddly enough, it was she who contacted me. Yeah. Uh, but, um, and when I said I've been trying to get a hold of you, you know, for so long, and, you know, it was trying to build this credibility. This is somebody that I think is, is um, very busy and they only have so much time. But if I, and know I'm going to be at a museum, um, I will sometimes ask people that I know, do you know anyone that's there? Mm. And, I've, and I've had people that said, yes, I call so-and-so, uh, tell them you talk to me, uh, and what are you going to go see? Well, I'm going to be in the area, they have an exhibit on such and such, and I'm really curious about this one particular garment. And, you know, okay, so it's amazing how often people will say yes. Yeah. Um, and again, it's being prepared, it's being respectful, um, and it's also being prepared to say no, because I have had people that, you know, I'm just not going to be there when you're going to be there, sure. will you be back, and you try to set it up later. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we can really geek out on, on all sorts <laughs> of things. I'm frequently in airports, and I'll sit there, and I'll be fascinated by what somebody's wearing, and I finally, I learned the hard way, I had this woman, in, at a we had the same flight, and she had this ex gorgeous uh like duster length coat on and it was all these pinch pleats that were sculpting this this garment and i kind of would walk over i was trying to look at it well i think she thought i was stalking her somehow <laughs> and because i'd move a little closer and she'd move away and i finally said i, I gotta i have to tell her because i think i was scaring her yeah and i finally went over and said i just want to let you know and i told her a bit about my background and i'm just really interested in looking at your coat and she's like oh Really? She said, well, I bought it because I liked it, and I'm sitting here telling her about what would have had to have gone into the construction of this garment, and that it probably would have needed about four times the fabric in order to do all this sculpting on it. Uh, you know, So I learned if you tell somebody immediately, you see a stranger, and you go, I really wanted to get a closer look at that jacket, or I want to get a closer 
closer look at this tunic that they're wearing, if you go over and just introduce yourself and just explain, you know, I, hi, my name's Robin and this is what I do. And I, I'm really interested in what you're wearing. Uh, I, there was a man at an airport one time that had on this really great tie and I wanted to see it. And you know, all of a sudden they're like, really? You think this is interesting? He's, my wife gave it to me. And, you know, you just, and, and then I've ended up meeting people that way. Uh, that sort of you know, they sort of ultimately become maybe a source of inspiration down the road. Yeah. So um, I mean, you, it's you've done you've clearly done a really great job of this in terms of getting access to really sort of what could feel like barricaded off content or materials or textiles or garments things you know behind museum glass um and and you've built some great relationships that way can you talk a little bit about how some of the strategies that you've used to do that and perhaps the way you approach it it's not even a strategy it's just kind of the way you operate as a person which i think is true in a lot of (laughs) i really think that that's true in a lot of cases Mm -hmm. um some of us this these type of behaviors are very second nature. Sometimes we have to learn them or be reminded of them. Um, but can you talk a little bit about how th- that has helped you grow your business over the years and how other designers can start to think about some of these strategies to to grow and market and build their companies, you know, not just with creating relationships with people, um, although a lot of it is relationships. But I'm curious mm-hmm. if you can expand on that in relation to like the 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 marketing aspect of of growing and building a fashion brand? I think one thing that really works to my advantage, and I've said this to a number of people over the years, is I'm sort of a proverbial Springer Spaniel puppy. (laughs) And that I I look at a room full of people sometimes, and I just want to kind of go bouncing in there because I'm sure someone's going to pet me. You know, I just go in there like, who am I going to target? And what do I know about the the, the people here? Um, And... I think sometimes we tend to get to knit in with a very close circle of people. And my husband was the one that told me years ago when I overheard somebody uh, asking him a question about, how did you know to get a hold of this person? And he said, well, I didn't know them, but I went in with, with you know, a lung full of air and I knew I was going to come out with the same thing. I had nothing to lose by asking, can I talk to you for a minute? And if you're looking at, and I think sometimes it helps if you really pinpoint or focus on, this is somebody that I want to at least make a connection with, with no other intent is I just want to make a connection with them. Mm -hmm. I think often um, you want to leverage people, but you don't want to exploit them. And I often hear people, especially in fashion design, that will tell me, I've tried to talk you know, to these people, but they're just everything really close-lipped about it, and they're, they have a white-knuckle grip on, on this insight. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but did you contact them, and the first thing you want is something from them. Yeah. Um, and if you do that, because some of these folks are, you know, I appreciate who I am and what I've done, and some of it is just letting them know. I've done some homework, you know something about them, um, I'm contacting you because I saw you did this, uh, may I ask you a question? And some of it is keep it very short and focused and try to establish a relationship instead of trying to do a Vulcan mind meld on them. <laughs> um, I think some people will come in and just, well, how, how do I do this? And you're going, how do you become a successful fashion designer? Um, that's not a, a one question and one conversation topic. Right. 
Um, so to me, it's exactly what do you want to know? With, with this couture collector who I tried so hard to get in touch with, I knew exactly what I wanted, and I wanted access to the Chanel jackets that she had that had unusual trim because I was trying to understand the breadth of the techniques that were used in creating these trims. Um, she, this is just a very small part of her collection. And then when that opened up, it was like, wow, look what else I have access to. And I wasn't aware that Christian Lacroix was using so much handwoven fabric um, and how some of the construction details differed. And, but I, I think for me, and yeah, I, I hear no. Um, and and it, it's, it's, I think I've mentioned in the past, it's a gut punch. I mean, it's like, ow, boy, that hurt. But when I find out maybe why they said no, and it could be that it was just not the right time for them. I've told people, though, when people say, you know, can I come by your studio? And you go, I, I'm not going to be there. Um, or I've had, every once in a while, people, um, when I used to live closer to Seattle, Washington, people, and my address was more readily available, people would call me and they, they were literally down the street. And you're going, um, oh, okay, but if they had set something up ahead of time, they wouldn't have found me in my pajamas, um, <laughs> which happened. I literally opened my front door and I was wearing, oddly enough, pink polar fleece pajamas <laughs> with a cup of coffee. And they came in and said, we want to see your studio. We want to see your work. And I, I had to, you know, I really can't do that right now. If they had called me the day before, it would have been a different answer. Yeah. Um, but I love this idea of like going out, being prepared to hear no, because that's going to happen. It's interesting. I was at a fashion show last night doing some impromptu interviews with designers there. And this one um, up and coming designer who I chatted with, she is out here in Denver from, I think it was Nashville. And I was asking her what other shows she had done. And she's done fashion shows all over the world, literally, um, Amsterdam, New York, all over. And I said, how are you getting into all these shows? Because she's still pretty up and coming. And she goes, you know, what? I reach out and I ask and I do the application and I put myself out there and I go, do you hear no a lot? And she goes, I hear no all the time. Mm -hmm. But I get into some of them and look at what I've done. And she goes, I just got turned down by Miami Fashion Week, but I'm going to apply again. You know, I, I looked at what they're showing compared to, you know, what I have to offer. And I kind of analyzed, you know, why didn't they accept me? What can I maybe do differently next time? You know, you can only tailor yourself so much to so many people or places. But um, she's like, I hear no all the time, but I get those few yeses. And those are the ones that count. Well, and you're not going to get the yeses yeah. unless you set yourself up for a no. And this is where I find if you do your homework, so she's probably looking very critically at, is this the right opportunity for me? Yes. And unfortunately, when you're young and you're just starting out, it's difficult to maybe vet these opportunities and what are the questions to ask. But so much is on the Internet, so you can go out and you know hopefully look at what are the requirements for being considered. Yeah. Um, but you know, do your homework make a stab at it. Um, every once in a while I come across opportunities where they say, we really want somebody that, that has more experience. Uh, but somehow people are, well, okay, let me, let me explain, you know, what you may not know about me or what I may not be communicating effectively. Um, I find one of the things that really helps is asking open-ended questions as opposed to something about just give me the information that might be a yes or a no, or, mm. you know, if, if somebody says, well, I, if you get the opportunity, when somebody turns you down, and this is whether it's a show, whether it's a boutique, a store, anything like that, and they turn you down, and you get the opportunity to ask them why, 
Don't be kicking the dirt and being pissy about it, but say, can you give me some feedback about what might make a difference the next time? And really listen to that feedback. We need to listen more than we talk sometimes. And that to me is, this is a growth opportunity. And we often, with fashion designers, we tend to show off and hold up the ones that are the real successful. But if you were to ask um, everybody from Isaac Mizrahi uh, and Zach Posen or Christian Siriano about the times they were told no or the times that something didn't work out, they could probably, you know, talk your ear off about, gee, I really had to pick myself up and pull myself together and um, figure out how to do it better the next time. Yeah, I listened to a brilliant podcast interview on quit your day job or do quit your day job or something with Trina Turk. And she talked a lot about how when she was first launching, she took some pieces to I forget one of the big box buyers, the big box retail buyers in New York City, and she got in front of them like 10 times and they kept saying no. And she kept asking them, you know, what's some feedback? Like, what do you want to see different? What do you want to see instead? You know, can you provide me with with a little bit of feedback as to why you didn't want this? Um, and then just kept iterating and iterating and iterating. Um, so on that note, can you? Um, I mean, because I know you do a lot of, you have an insane amount of knowledge, um, and you've used a, a a lot of it to help get yourself ahead in terms of like marketing and knowing your audience. Um, and, and some of that business strategy mm-hmm. stuff that we don't always get in fashion school that can be hard to come by. You know, we can come across it in a business sense, but then it can be hard to relate to our industry. So can you talk a little bit about um, some of that strategy that, that you've learned and used over the years? One of the things that I have found that has helped me so much, and these are things that you later on find from your past that you thought may not have been significant, but proved invaluable later on, um, were some uh, classes I took while I was in college on marketing as part of you know my background in communications and perceptual psychology, and this kind of looked like a, a good match. And and one of the classes um, started off, and this is kind of marketing 101, we're talking about the four P's in uh, marketing, which is product, pricing, placement, and promotion. And I remember my professor saying the very first thing, and he's so true, that Marketing is fundamentally about one thing, and that's communicating with your customer. And if you are going to communicate with your customer, you have to know who your customer is. And that's one thing that I find that people will maybe get uh, turned down for an opportunity is they, they, the customer is a mismatch. Um, if, if I went into, if somebody came into uh a boutique in Seattle and they were doing something for this climate, it might work great, but going into Phoenix or, or something is might, might not work. You know, who's the customer that you're, you're looking at. So what is, what exactly are you making? What's the clarity you have of your product, your design? Uh, Who's going to wear it? When are they going to wear it? How old are these people? Um, If you're designing for people in their twenties, that may not work for people that are in their 40s and 50s. And that and people in their 40s and 50s are uh, a largely, I think, overlooked and older, uh, are <laughs> largely an overlooked group when it comes to fashion. Um, you know, it, it frustrates me when I would see Project Runway and they would talk about, you know, 
it's not young, um, it's not leading edge, and you're going, you know, some of us want really good quality classic garments uh, that we can get some mileage out of. Uh, so, you know, looking at what are you making, who is going to wear it, for whom are you intending this for? Yeah, because you're not, I mean, uh, can you just talk about this statement a little bit? Because this is something I hear over and over too often. Um, I, I think it's shifting a little bit, but too often people are saying, I make it for women from 20 to 50 size extra small to 5X. And I like literally cringe when I hear that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it doesn't work. Um, first, especially in marketing, because if we're talking about product pricing, placement, promotion, the way you're promoting is might be different for somebody that's in 25 mm-hmm. who's online using Instagram, Facebook, Twitter than somebody um, that's older that says, I really want this information to maybe come to me in a different format. I may want it to come in email. Um, but you can't design for everybody. And I remember years ago, and I might disclose some something that people might not want to hear about, but um, I happened to be large busted. And I was in an athletic store for women. This is a store for women. Mm-hmm. And the jog bra rep happened to be there. And I was asking the sales clerk about uh, uh, a bra that I could wear for working out and running. And this woman says, oh, I'm the rep from Jog Bra. Um, We can fit anybody. And I said, okay. They couldn't. (laughs) They couldn't. I mean, the the sales rep um, was really bewildered. She said, you know, we claim that we've got a, a, a product that will work for everybody and there's something standing in the dressing room with the jog bra rack with their hands on my breast as I'm bouncing up and down seeing that this bra isn't holding me in place. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you need to go back to the drawing board. I, there's really, when it comes to fashion, unless maybe you're talking about a white t-shirt that is going to work from extra extra small to 5X. Uh, it's a, these are, it's also a different, it's a different customer. It's a different product it's a different price point because if you're designing for extra extra small you also have a lot less fabric in something that's going into something larger um is that the the appropriate fabric for something like that how is the person moving um how do they know where are they going to buy it you know if if i'm looking at something i'm probably not going to find it um where i'm looking because if they're saying well it's in forever 21 i'm going well, but I don't shop at Forever 21. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm like Forever 21 times two or more. Uh, <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's impractical. It, it's, I think, more reasonable to think about having a garment that has a little more versatility for the customer itself. But if you try to market to everybody, you're going to miss almost everybody. Yeah. Um, and being very focused on who is your customer, how old are they. And most of the time you can start whittling away. I know it's women. I know that they're, they live in this area because this, this jacket's going to work in the northern part of the United States, maybe not in the southern part where it's warmer. Yeah. So you, you really can start almost backing into a narrow, more narrow focus for your customer. Uh, what do they want to spend? Um, if if you're looking at designing uh, 
garments are you trying to hit you know a 50 to 60 dollar price point or are you trying to hit something that's more like three to four hundred dollars those are different customers um and and it it, it 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 can be tough i still think i can take three three or four hours and four to six fashion designers and you can come in with the underserved markets because there are underserved markets out there do you think, because like one of the first things that I think of, and, and I think I, I, I know the answer is different than this, but I think the gut reaction from a lot of people when you say, okay, so you start narrowing in on a really specific woman, for example, let's just say based on, you know, how our conversation's going right now, and maybe she lives in the northern U.S. and she's this age, and all of a sudden I think people get really terrified that, well, there's not that many of her, and there's so many more of these other people. Mm-hmm. Well, but if if you're looking at a more narrow uh, customer demographic, you could also end up being a slightly bigger fish in a smaller pond. Mm, yes, I love that. Because, because if people continue to knock certain uh, customer demographics, because you know, and this this is what um, you know, I over the years, you know, because I I will watch. watch uh, Project Runway, but all of a sudden they're they have a challenge for designing for quote a real woman, and you sit there and go wait a minute I'm a real woman <laughs> you, know, you, you you don't want to design for me, uh, but I've got money, um, and we still want to look great. I mean and and I know when when you look at the the demographics a lot of people want to focus on under thirty, and you're going yeah but look at Christy Brinkley Christy Brinkley's over sixty years old she looks pretty damn hot I think. Uh, <laughs> You know, that, that you still have people that want to be fashionable. And I do see some changes going on in the fashion industry where um, recently in Fashion Week, um, you're going to see models of different sizes. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, yes, thank you, because we still want to look great. Um, and there's a lot of us out there. And even though it might be a very focused market, you still could have more than you know what to do if you're meeting their need beautifully and better than anybody else. Because if you're focusing your uh, design on a very specific market, you're going to probably come up with a better solution for them than somebody that says, I'm designing for everybody. Yeah. Okay. Now, if, you think about, if you think about automotive design and you said, well, what if a car company said, well, we're going to design a car that works for everybody? It's like, well, the same car may not work for the soccer mom that work, works for uh, a 25-year-old young man who's, you know, going outdoors every weekend uh, and, you know, backpacking and may not work for the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Yeah. So... As a designer, I'm let's say I'm I'm I've got my brand and I'm I'm figuring out like who my customer is and then I'm I'm looking at these four P's. I've got product, position, price and promotion. Um so can you talk us through a little bit more tangible of like what would you advise someone to do? So okay, I'm starting to narrow down that okay, maybe they're in this region, they're this age. Like, what else am I doing to kind of really go through this process and apply that to my brand so that I can have a better chance at succeeding, so that I can have a better chance at reaching my customer and getting sales? Like, what does that really look like? 
I think if you were to take an example and say, all right, I need some clarity and focus in what I'm doing, and what what are customers interested in? Right now, I think one of the, the big things, and I think this is going to continue for a very long time, um, is people are looking at being ecologically uh, responsible. Mm-hmm. And I want to look at uh, each eco-friendly fibers. Uh, I want to look at you know what they refer to as ethical fashion. Um, you had uh, one of your uh, recent podcasts was Elle with the uh, Elle O'Reilly. Elle O'Reilly, Elle, yeah. Elle O'Reilly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, who is um, recycling and repurposing. So you know, let me, this is what is important to people. This is important to a demographic that's not just 25 years old and not just 55 years old or somewhere in between. Um, so what what is the availability of sustainable fabrics? And this is something that I think is getting better. How do I educate these people about why is um, hemp and tencel more eco-friendly than bamboo? And those are things that I, I love using hang tags for, you know, let me explain the environmental friendliness of hemp and the quality of hemp fabrics, I think, are getting better. Yeah. So when I start looking at that, you're going to probably start hitting a higher price point. So when you've gone from here's my product and I want to do uh, a collection of you know three to four garments that leverage sustainable fabrics that are being produced in uh, an, a way that doesn't drive you know increase the carbon footprint. What is the price for that? And where are these customers? Because there are customers out there that if you're giving them something they feel good about wearing and feel good about the story behind it, they often will pay it, but you often need to educate them. So are there boutiques in these particular markets? You're probably going to have a better chance going in that direction as far as the placement than trying to get into Macy's. Mm-hmm. Um, Macy's um, is trying to do something very broad in their perspective, but if I'm looking at boutiques in uh, the Pacific Northwest, which is where I live, there's going to be a better chance of getting the right product at the right price into the right place, and then you get to do, so we have our product, our price, our placement, and now our promotion, which is how do I know that people know about it? And that's where the promotion is really getting to be, I think, a lot of fun. It's getting it, People think of marketing and advertising as the same thing. And advertising is just one small facet. But promotion with the Internet, we can do this at a much more reasonable price. I think everybody, you, you, you have your product, your price, where is it? Where's your website? And if you don't have a website, you're not ready. Um, because a website, I think, is going to often legitimize somebody that you really have made this commitment. I can see evidence that you've done it. Are you? Um, I can go out as a potential customer and check what the designs are, uh, what kind of models have you used, uh, and are you wearing what you're doing or you know, what you're making? Um, I had a, a well-known fashion designer when I was talking to her about wanting to work with fashion designers and potentially elevating the visibility of handwoven fabric. And this fashion designer looks at me and kind of not quite snarled, but basically called me out on that and said, then why are you not wearing anything handwoven right now? Mm. And I, I just stared at her with, wow, um, 
boy, it was a gut punch, but boy, was it a good point. <laughs> that that if if you have designs, and I've had people that say, well, I'm working on my design, um, I don't sew that well. Find somebody who does. Um, and if you're wearing it, um, and this is where you have a number of, of your your previous um, uh, podcasts where the people started off making something for themselves. Yeah. That somebody else said, oh, I like that. Where can I get that? And it just began this organic odyssey and journey of, wow, I can make more. I can make more. How do I you know, make this into a business now? Right. And I think like that's such an interesting point, too, because I think that it 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 doesn't always have to start big. It doesn't always have to start with. I'm going to just go straight to the factory or straight to a pattern drafter and I'm going to get all of this stuff made and I'm going to do a production run of even just 50 or 100 or 500 pieces, whatever you're looking into. I mean, I've gotten phone calls from people who they just blindly are ready to go into production and order a thousand units. And I'm like, no, 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 you're not. <laughs> I, I mean, I try to set like I'm like, I'm not here to be a dream crusher. But I think sometimes there's so much value in starting slow and starting yeah. small. And that can be with just making a couple garments. And like you said, if you aren't a great seamstress, then find someone to sew one or two for you that fit you and start wearing that around and see what happens and and start having conversations with people at events or at work or wherever you are about that and getting their feedback and seeing what they like and what they don't like. Um, I mean, that can be as small as it is. And that's a very tiny investment to start dabbling in. Is this something? Do I have something here? It, exactly. If I had to start over from from, you know, ground zero right now, yeah, probably what I would do is I would probably look at um, a couple of, of like key boutiques even that are independent, so I can deal directly with the owner, um, and go in there a couple of times, look at what they've got, try to get an idea of who I think their customer is, what's the price point, how how would anything I do complement the inventory but maybe not compete with it because some of these uh, owners these and the, the uh, managers of these boutiques and galleries might look at well we've already made a commitment if you want to bring in something exactly like it so how, how do how do you fill a niche uh, that they're not serving at that point yeah uh, and then you know make your designs find out um, how you approach showing them what you can do because you know if you start small inventory and i've heard this from a number of your your pre in your previous podcast inventory is expensive it's crippling and 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 i think you had somebody um earlier this year that they they did their their production and ended up selling it on ebay because it had not been done right yeah and so you you want to make sure that you're starting off on the right foot it's it's easier to deal with a small success than to try to recover from a failure. Yeah. And to get that feedback, because as much as it hurts to admit it, most of us are not that good when we first start out as mm. we think we are. Yeah. And we can look back and say, oh man, I really, really miss it on that. Um, and how do I improve it without ending up with, you know, thousands upon thousands of dollars spent on an inventory that, what do I do with now? Do I sell it on eBay? Do I just take it to the local thrift store? 
and recover from that. It, it One of the things that's unfortunate when you're trying to start a career in just about anything, especially fashion design, is the it's the most expensive often when you're just starting out when you have the least income coming in. Yeah, and that's tough. Because mm-hmm. you're, you're not established enough to go and do a large production run. Uh, but it's it, you're going to build you know build the future as opposed to trying to take a big bite and go oh I think I know what I'm doing uh, I there's been a number of people that I think have just been shattered with you know these earlier challenges that didn't work out and it, you know it, I don't think it has to be that way fashion design schools can only prepare people to do so much. Um, and, and I, I think they're not preparing people as well as they should be. I think there needs to be some updating maybe to their programs. And I really would love to see more fashion design programs having uh, at, at least, I don't even know, just a, a class or even just um, on the business side of this. You know, how do you, on the pricing, pricing's really hard because it requires how you're sourcing your materials. Well, where are you sourcing them from? Um, are you working with mill ends? If you're working with mill ends because you got a great price on it, how do you reproduce your designs? You know, you can't count on those mill ends. Right. Um, so how do you uh, find somebody that will allow you to purchase in small quantities? And, and, and these people are out there. Um, but how the whole pricing thing works um, is, is I think something that most people coming out of fashion school are completely bewildered at. Um, Yeah, I had a conversation with someone just earlier this afternoon who was talking about that. They're like, you know, even regardless of launching your own label, like working at a brand, like they want you to understand as a designer, you have to understand all the pieces and components that go into this and what the prices really look like and what the margins are and like how because you kind of have to work backwards from some of that into into your design. Um, and and they're not being prepared with some of this sort of base fundamental knowledge that you're talking about here. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I, I think it's just got to be uh, terrifying, especially now. Yeah. That, that for, for people you know, leaving their programs, feeling like they're, they should have been ready and finding out, wait a minute, I don't have the skills and knowledge and background in AI because I... I read your your uh, post last week. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know this is like and, a whole nother can of worms. <laughs> well, but but you know, and, and it, it what deficits do you have to overcome? And yeah. so one of it is the business side of it about wow, I'm not prepared for the sourcing of materials. And then don't forget sourcing of all of the other things that go along with that. Yeah. That okay, you source the fabric, but you didn't source anything else. Um, and then what goes into you know, potentially the amount of waste that goes into that um, and trying to figure out something. And I think some people have a tendency to think if they underprice, that that's better. And underpricing is as great a sin as overpricing. Uh, and, you know, if people in the world have a perception of the value of a garment based upon what they pay for it. And there's some really mediocre designer clothing out there that's been quickly you know, mass produced, but it's got the right logo on it. And you know, why would somebody spend this amount of money on this when it's been made poorly? Well, 
it has a high price tag on it and it's got a designer name on it. And this is where the, the general public needs to be educated about how to identify a good garment. Right. And it's more than just the perceived value of the price tag and the logo. Right. And this is where going back to your customer, um, there are, I, I think there is a growing uh, interest on the part of the consumers to say, you know what, I really want to purchase locally, not just even made in the USA, but if you have, if you're just starting out and you, and somebody, I was selling at a boutique in, in Seattle, Washington for a while, and I was their only local person. And that went a long way of saying, mm. you know, the, the, the carbon footprint is small. It's locally made. This is one of your kind. Um, you get into different uh, communities around uh, this country and really around the world and people go, wow, you know, they're, they're one of our own. Isn't that exciting? Um, so it, it's, it's, there's too much importance perhaps placed on maybe New York that people feel like, gee, if I'm in fashion, I better be in New York or I yes. better be in Los Angeles. Yes. And, and you're going, no, you can be anywhere you want. I live in a town in Washington State that has fewer than 200 people in it. Wow. Um, and, and yeah, I need to get, get out of here occasionally <laughs> and go do something. But um, the Internet has really leveled the playing field and has made uh, communication, has made access to information so much easier. And... It also makes it a lot more cost-effective as far as operations in being outside of somewhere that's really expensive. Yeah. Um, so kind of going full circle, I think this will go full circle, perhaps not, and that's okay if it doesn't. Um, <laughs> you talked a little bit earlier about um, sort of like wearing some of your designs into boutiques, or maybe not even wearing your designs into boutiques, but to start by exploring some boutiques in your local area, looking at what they have, you know, genuinely engaging in their inventory um, and thinking about, you know, literally who do you hang with, which is something we say in this industry. And then, you know, we jump to like, you have your designs represented in some boutiques. So where is that middle step? Like, what does that look like um, for you kind of creating those contacts and building those relationships with those boutique owners to get some representation where then that's awesome. You're a local designer. Someone, I mean, I know I've gone into shops before and I'm like, what do you, what do you have that's local? Like, I want to see what people are doing and like, see if there's someone here I can support. Like, I would love to do that. Um, and then all of a sudden you stand out in the whole boutique. So where's that? Like, we kind of jumped from looking at what's on the racks to now my products are in the store. Mm-hmm. Can you, well, your products yeah. in the store, then you got to, you have to keep it fresh and that's that's the one thing that I think can be um, really knock the wind out of use when you go wow I, I have my my modicum of success I'm in here I'm starting to sell things seem to be going well and then it's well where are you going with with your line um, because the boutique is probably not going to want the exact same thing a year later so how do you how do you go? Well, how do I keep it fresh with color? That's a big one. I think color can be a big thing as far as keeping things looking fresh and new. Um, but I think once you start off, and let's say it's starting to go well on a very small scale, of what is working, what isn't working, and if it doesn't work, there I've I've had mismatches in the past where um, 
you just go, I don't think this is really a good fit anymore just because their their clientele changed. Some of it is also backing into who is their customer. Um, there was a boutique in Seattle that I found out after I started selling there, their primary customer, even though I was doing things for women, their primary customers were men because they, they worked with um, the local businessmen who realized, oh my gosh, it's my wife's birthday, it's our anniversary, it's Valentine's Day, I need to get her something. Well. That was where you ended up with the higher end garments, mm -hmm. because you know a simple scarf may not have worked, um, and so they were going in and spending, you know, four, five, six hundred dollars on a jacket. That, wow, I want to get this for my wife, and so understanding that I'm not selling to the the customer that's wearing it. The customer is somebody else. This is also if you're dealing with um, children's market. The customer is not the child. The customer the is the parent or the grandparent. Grandparents mm. are often overlooked Huge. market because the, the grandparents <laughs> often have the financial resources <laughs> that the parents don't. Huge. And so um, I was looking over uh, a mood board for a website um, called Mod Baby. And I'm looking at it thinking, this is making any sense. Uh, it's The colors they're using are brown and blue. And then the words that they had used to describe it, they have like stylish and sophisticated in here. And I kept looking at it going, well, that's not baby stuff. And somebody said, well, it's not for the babies. The babies are not getting online and shopping. <laughs> it's the parents, but especially the grandparents. Ah. And, and so when, when people are doing things for children, look at the grandparents. Yes, it's an older market, which means the way you, you promote to them and where your product is sold from could be different than if you're working with the parents or something. Parent, and this is where I'm looking at demographics. Is my demographic, you know, I'm they're buying it, they're 25 years old and great. Well, five, six years later, they now have children. Yeah. They may not have the disposable income that that they once had, but grandparents will. Uh, and and so it's some of it is understanding it's not the person that's wearing it at the end that could be the customer. It could be somebody very different. And that's where it's kind of fun because, boy, if you start looking at, let me promote to grandparents, you know, let me promote to the aunts and the uncles, uh, you know, that's a, that's a different market that maybe starts opening up. It seems maybe very specific for looking at specific kinds of garments for children. Well, but if you start looking at who's really going to potentially be purchasing it, then the market then opens up. It's it's hard to get a market that's too specific if you're if you're really giving them something that works for them. Yeah. I like that mindset. I think it can be really hard to sort of swallow, but in the long run it is it's so much better to be an inch wide and a mile deep than an inch deep and a mile wide. Exactly. Exactly. Because the other thing is is when you start getting success and more success begets more success and it builds from there, you all of a sudden find yourself overwhelmed with how do I handle all of this growth? Yeah. Uh, I've got, cause you've had a number of people on that all of a sudden, like I, I can't keep up. I can't keep up. So this is where, and, and the growth in business, and this is from my years as a, as a management consultant, growth in business isn't linear. It tends to be more logarithmic that once you start needing more help, Things become 
more complex because communication starts becoming an issue with, I have people that are working for me. How do I explain to them what I want? When I come back, they didn't do it exactly the way it needed to be done. And it gets, you know, goes from there. And so trying to be focused and be really good at what you do, trying to design a product that really works for that key customer um, is more important than trying to come up with a design that works for the world. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant note to end on. Um, so many great, so many great little nuggets of advice in there, Robin. It was such a great time chatting with you and hearing some of your stories again. And um, thank you for sharing all of this with everybody out there listening. Um, where can everybody find you online if they want to connect or learn more about what you're doing? Um, my personal website is spadystudios.com and spady is spelled S-P-A-D-Y uh, studios is plural.com. Uh, my weaving magazine is heddlecraft.com, which is H-E-D-D-L-E-C-R-A-F-T. If you're a hand weaver out there and you're interested in checking out my magazine. One thing that um, uh, some people, and this is kind of an aside, has more to do with, with promotion. Um, I think more fashion designers need to sign up for uh, at a website called Help a Reporter Out. Um, it's, it, the acronym's HARO. And this is where you can sign up. They, they don't bug you, but they send you an email three times a day. That are These are all the reporters that are looking for input. And sometimes getting your name out there in addition to, I have a, I have a line. How am I promoting myself? And I can do email and Twitter and have all these things going on. Having it, somebody else endorse you. And so... Um, if you sign up, and in the past week, just even today, they uh, there was a reporter wanting to look for someone that could help them uh, with an article on what are the current fashion trends. A couple mm. of days ago, they had, they had somebody saying, we want to talk to people about the psychology of fashion. Um, some of them are as specific as one that came out a couple of days ago from the, uh, the story ideas for the Miami Herald's Indulge magazine for their fashion issue in October. Mm. And you know, what are some, you know, summer, they were looking for summer fashion for babies and summer fashion essentials. Um, and one, um, this was just about two weeks ago, which was um, on fast fashion, a reporter writing an article about how to make fashion more ethical. Mm -hmm. And I think there are a lot of fashion designers that if you look at that and go, you know, I've got some input on that. This is all done via email, at least to make that connection. So you can reply. You may not know exactly who you're replying to, but it's amazing how often these reporters are working on very tight deadlines. They need that expertise and being able to use the media to help expose your name, your brand, your line um, can also be a way of promoting for a relatively low cost or no cost way. So the, um, and I think you can probably put a link on your website to help a reporter out. Yeah, um, I've not, this is brilliant. And I will put that in the show notes. I've not heard of it, but it's so interesting because I just um, interviewed a PR woman a couple weeks ago. The, the interview is not live yet, but well, I guess when yours airs, it will be. So I'll link to that as well in the show notes, an interview with Lorraine. Um, and she used to be a journalist and for 15, 17 years, a really, really long time, and she was covering fashion, and she now teaches brands how to DIY their PR. But mm -hmm. she was talking a lot about how, 
you know, kind of exactly what you're saying. Like these reporters, they have to come up with a lot of stories with they have to cite experts, they need content to share. And it's really hard for them to dig through all the trenches of content and find the stuff that's out there. And so sometimes it's just a matter of like matchmaking. So if you can facilitate mm-hmm. that matchmaking, you as the brand, you as the designer who, you know, has something to share, or has something has an expert opinion, um, or voice or what insight to share, whatever it may be. It's not always about just pitching your product. Sometimes it's just about talking about a story or sharing some industry knowledge. I think that can go so far. So I love this platform. Um, I'm definitely going to check it out. I hadn't heard of it. So thank you for sharing. Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing is because you're responding to these initially um, via email, you, it helps you work on your pitch. Yeah. Well, what's my message? Um, and, and if you screw it up and they get on the other end, you're probably not harming yourself a whole lot. <laughs> One thing is that they pretty much, you, you have to have a website because mm. um, they need, that's going to legitimize somebody and they're going to be able to go out and check it out. Yeah. Um, but I think it helps. And it also helps if, because I come across uh, the postings where, yeah, it's not for me, but I know somebody that this works for. And I can send that off. And to me, that helps bolster, you know, my network. Yeah, that's that providing can, value to them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, 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 was, I, read, I saw this, um, this publication's looking for something. I had a, by doing that, I helped a friend get into the New York Times. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, amazing. it was like, wow, that's really kind of cool. So, yeah. But, but yeah, if, if, and again, this goes back to sort of the quid pro quo. You know, let's kind of all help each other out because we're trying to accomplish different things, but we can't do it in a vacuum. No, we can't. We need support. We need input, feedback, conversations with others. It's essential. Um, Exactly. Oh, I feel like we could go on for a whole other hour here, <laughs> which is what we did the first time we talked. Um, so, Robin, I will end with the with the question I ask everybody at the end of the episode, which um, I know you're a pretty avid listener, so you probably mm-hmm. know what it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what is uh, one thing people never ask you about working in the fashion industry that you wish they did? Um, I, I think what am I signing on for as far as a commitment of time? And this is how many hours a week can I expect to work and how long is this going to take? Mm. Because I think if somebody wants overnight success and think they'll do it on 30, 35 hours a week and roll into work at you know 8, 9 in the morning and take off at 4, 5 in the afternoon, afternoon uh, that's not going to work. And I think um, I always keep thinking when I wish people would ask me how many hours a week can I expect to work that if I asked Isaac Mizorazzi, you know, how many hours a week do you work? His response, I can just picture him saying, oh, darling, it would be easier to count the hours <laughs> I of, don't oh, that I sleep. You know, that, that, yeah, I can count hours I sleep, but I, you know, it's because this, and, and why do we do it? We do it because we love it. It's exciting. And when it works, it's one of the greatest thrills of all. Yes, you're going to have moments where you feel like you got kicked to the curb, but Wow, um, and and it's it's going to take that drive, that initiative. You're going to hear no, um, but you're if you do it, um, it, it it it's brilliant. And if you're not willing to do it, I would say to folks, you know, I don't think if you're willing to put in the time and spend that time investing in you know the next three to five years, you just may not be that into it. Yeah, and that's okay. That's okay. Um, if people do all of a sudden come out and go, wow, I didn't know that's what I was signing on for. And again, this is also going back to maybe it's not being a fashion designer. Maybe it's being 
something connected with the fashion design industry and being a fashion professional um, that you may find that you want to go more toward PR. You might want to go more towards uh, uh, pattern design. Uh, you might want to, I, I think Stamatina was talking about becoming a stylist. Yeah. Um, and so there's, there's a variety of ways. I'm looking at it from the perspective of textile design. Uh, and, you know, there are lots of opportunities out there. And, and as you start putting that toe in the water, uh, the water might be chilly, but it starts warming up once you kind of get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great analogy. Well, thank you so much, Robin. This has been tremendously fun to chat with you. Um, a really great honor having you on the show as an avid listener. And thank you for reaching out and initiating um, a conversation with me because I've really enjoyed talking with you. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And um, I hope uh, your listeners may find that there's the there's hope for them yet you know that there's lots of opportunity out there some of it's just taking a little bit of time to think about it and a time to work at it thank you so much for listening to this episode of the successful fashion designer podcast thank you robin it was a tremendous pleasure to chat with you i really appreciate each and every one of you out there you guys you have no idea what your support uh, for the show means to me I will remind you that if you enjoyed this episode, do a favor to a friend, a colleague, anyone out there that you think would enjoy this episode or the the show in general, take 30 seconds right now, send them a text with this link. Um, I know they'll thank you for it and I thank you for it. It's the best way to help the show grow. You guys tell me all the time how great of a resource this is, how we talk about stuff nobody else in the fashion industry talks about. So go ahead and share that wealth a little bit with someone out there who, who may need some of this information as much as you do and you need it. All right. Thank you so much, you guys. If you would like to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, visit the show notes at sfdnetwork.com slash 58. Thanks so much. And I'll talk to you in the next episode of Successful Fashion Designer Podcast.